You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Obviously, it would be tremendously useful to have a group of trained soldiers who can see inside secret bases, bend enemy weapons from a distance, and cause designated targets to fall over dead, all through the power of mind. Some of you will be aware that the U.S. and Soviet military and intelligence agencies both investigated the use of psychic spies and paranormal powers for covert use. It turned out there was a pretty big gap between the cinematic X-Men type powers and the actual performance of this real group. Somewhere between Magneto bending a tank turret and an Israeli magician bending a spoon, lay spectacular hopes that psychic superpowers might someday play a part in the war between government superpowers. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. This is Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. In this episode, we're pleased to bring you an interview with psychologist Ray Hyman, a longtime skeptical activist and educator, a founding member of PSYCOP, now CSI, and one of the key investigators into the U.S. government's program to develop psychic soldiers. Some of this story was revealed in John Ronson's great book, The Men Who Stare at Goats. But in this interview, you'll hear Ray's personal recollections about magic, skepticism, and the mysterious claims of a famous psychic named Uri Geller. In a timely coincidence, as I was preparing this episode, the Daily Mail released several stories about the alleged psychic spy work of Uri Geller. We'll hear more about the fascinating Mr. Geller in this interview. Ray mentions a lot of books and people and ideas in this interview, and I try to link to many of them in the show notes, so you can check those out at monsterdog.org. Now, I'm not going to pretend that psychic soldiers are monsters. I suppose they could be monstrous. But just for a long time, I thought this was a fascinating story. And when Karen arranged for us to have this interview, I felt it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. And I hope you enjoy what follows. Don't worry, Ray does have a favorite monster. Oh, one more thing. There's a few places in the interview where I have to reconstruct the questions because some of the technical issues we had when we recorded. This was the most technically challenging interview we've done that actually turned out okay. Unfortunately, this loss included Karen's first question, which was, how did Ray get started with cold reading? We start the interview with that. Monster talk. I'm a magician, but uh, people paid me more to do a mental show, so and I got more work that way. So I'm doing mentalism, and I, I was always, since I was stuck... Uh, I couldn't travel much because I was also a student. So I had to pitch myself to the same groups 
uh, you know, same organizations every year. And that meant I need to change my act, uh, or add to my act, so, so I wasn't repeating myself to the same group. And so I, looked, I was looking around for new things to do. I did tried hypnotic demonstrations. I did a memory act, uh, all usually as to supplement my mentalism act. And finally, I got to the point where I discovered that when I was doing a mentalism act, even doing magic, every once in a while I would give one of the people in the audience a little short little reading. I would tell them about themselves, a little cold reading. And to my surprise, people always, that was the biggest hit of my show all the time. Even though I was doing this fancy magic and fancy other stuff, they always talked about the cold reading. You know, that was just a throwaway for me. So I realized, hey, that's something I should be able to exploit. So I looked around for something to, you know, some sort of um, a thing like uh, astrology or something I could, you know, attach the cold reading to. And the only thing that made sense to me was palmistry. So I read some books on palmistry, and then I was in business. And so you never really believed in the paranormal aspects of palm reading, did you? You just thought that they're... Initially, there might have been something to the, the theory. You're right. I didn't believe anything paranormal about it. But the, the possibility to me was that at least it's plausible uh, because it's attached to, the you know, reading something from the person's hands. And I had read uh, in some of my palmistry books, but then I checked it out, that there are diseases and a few other things uh, experts can tell from someone's hands. So that added to the plausibility that maybe we could tell people a lot of other things from their hand as well. So I went to the library and got some books out of the library on palm reading. I uh, learned it, and I then put up my shingle and was in business. I very first person to come, uh, usually I did these affairs. very first person I did, she just was delighted. And I was reading everything direct, you know, as it should be. In other words, the lines on the hand. I already knew that most readings uh, have uh, depend on using generalities which people can fit to themselves. But I was throwing in, because upon book reading books said you could do that, I was throwing in also aspects about their health, and and you could date it also. Uh, let's say that I was looking at the headline, and I saw a break in a person's headline. You can date it using the palmistry techniques that I had been reading about. Let's say they had a, a break in a headline age around age 40. So I would tell them that something happened uh, dealing with your um, brain or something. Did you have a brain aneurysm or something like that at around 40 years of age? Or did you fall out of a tree and hit your head? And I was amazed to me, it seemed to me, that a lot of people reacted uh, surprised and validated these rather specific statements I was throwing into my regular palm reading. And uh, that got me thinking that maybe there's something to it. So I'm not sure I ever fully believed it, but I I could defend it and I... I I think I told Karen a story about how uh, my psychology professor, uh, the head of the psychology department when I was an undergraduate, heard I was reading palms for money, and he called me into his office, and he uh, gave me a dressing down. He said, don't you know that this is just pure, pure nonsense? There's no validity to palm reading, and you're taking money under false pretenses, uh, what a nasty thing you were doing, and it's a shame, and stuff like that. And he went on and on and on, and I let him go. Uh, and he finally he stopped, and I said simply, can I see your hand? <laughs> so he, so he put, put his hand in front of me, and I gave him a reading. He didn't say anything, but I left. But a few weeks later, I got a note from him saying, could you come to see me again? So I came, and he... Uh, we went into his office, he shut the door, and he sat down in a chair and put both hands out and says, tell me more. Wow. <laughs> I think that's a great anecdote showing how uh, powerful cold reading is. Uh, yes, I love cold reading because, to me, it's the uh, ideal 
context in which to understand all of deception and all the things that skeptics are trying to uh, expose or deal with. But to the, the cold reading in, embodies everything that's necessary to know about why smart people can go wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's why I love cold reading. That's why I give the workshops on cold reading at Mandy's and other places. And, uh, and uh, to me, it, it can't go wrong. You know, I, I always think, boy, you know, I'm going to be in television and get, they want me to do a cold reading. What if, what, what if I, I fail? What if, you know, you, you never know. Maybe I get a, a very recalcitrant, uh, person they give me and, uh, and I'm going to, and they're going to say, no, that's not me. It's never happened. And I did, I think I did my first cold reading on television back in the Dumont Network when, when I was a graduate student. I think it was about 1952 or something like that. And I've given cold readings uh, on, um, no, mostly palm reading, but I've done other kinds where you just stand up and look at people. Uh, and I've done that many, many times on various TV shows. Uh, I even have videos of several of them, that, uh, and I put together a for my workshops. Sometimes I put together a a selection of my readings that I show them to show what cold reading is and how powerful it is. But so far, and I've been as I said, I'm 88 years old now, and I've been doing palm reading since I was 16. Wow. Uh, I don't recall anyone ever saying, hey, that's not me. So how did you go from uh, being a palm reader to becoming a skeptic? Oh, I was a skeptic before I was a palm reader. I uh, was a skeptic from age seven onwards. I don't ever remember not being a skeptic. And uh, the way that came about was that at age seven, I did my first magic show for money. And that happened because uh, my father gave me a few magic tricks, the kind you should buy in a joke shop for my seventh birthday. So I worked with them, and then I took them to school, and I did them for the show and tell. And the teacher must have thought it was cute or something, uh, because she asked me, would I be willing to do that for the Parent Teachers Association meeting? I said, yes. And so I did it, and they gave me $5. Now, that was back in... um, 1945. <laughs> so, uh, no, was yes, 1945, I think. Uh, no, 1928, 1935, actually. So that's how far back it was. So I was a lot of money then. And I was able to uh, go to a printer and without, without $5 and ask him to make me some business cards. And he did. And then my name and how to contact me. I distributed those cards all over the city. And I got a call from the library, and I they had, they had me come and uh, do thing, uh, do a magic show for the library uh, for the story hour. And I got other magic shows, and from then on in, I was on my way. What happened was there was a little library down the street from where I lived, down the hill. And it was a branch of the, of the major public library. And it was, I usually was the only one in that library, I know. And the, the librarian, she always was looking out for good books that I might read. And when I told her I was doing magic, she uh, got hold of a, a book to give me uh, to read. Uh, it's a children's book, but it was on the life of Harry Houdini, the great magician. And uh, I read that, and that's the first time I heard of Houdini. And, but I, the one thing that stuck with me was that not only was Houdini a great magician, but he spent most of his career debunking spirit mediums and fakes and psychics of all kind. And I took it for granted that that's what a magician, if I'm going to be a magician, I have to be a debunker. I have to go around and exposing fakes. And so, as far as I can remember, I always was a skeptic. So how how important is being, because I've heard Randy talk about this, but how important is being a magician or having magical training when you're trying to find trickery and deception when you're doing these sort of parapsychology research studies? Well, here's where my good friend and I, uh, my good friend Randy and I differ completely. And we, we, we've talked about this with each other a lot. He believes, he insists that you need a magician 
if you're testing a psychic, you need a magician to be, be by your side. Because the magician will see things that um, uh, the psych- scientist or whoever is testing the psychic will not see. And I disagree completely. I'd say over half the magicians who encounter a psychic, like Uri Geller, for example, uh, are completely taken in by it. Uh, Geller was supported and still is has the support of a lot of famous magicians. So magicians are not necessarily uh, the best people to see trickery by a, by a fake psychic. Randy is, is good at that because he's good at a lot of other things. He's not more than just a magician. He's an all-around scholar, actually, self-educated, but he's, he, he knows about everything. And so because he can do it and see it, it doesn't mean that other... In fact, it's, I know a lot of cases where... It's, uh, scientists and fellow psychologists have called in a magician to help them when they're dealing with a psychic, and the magician has been taken in. So I, I don't go along with the idea that just because someone is a magician that they can spot trickery. In fact, magicians at every I go to conventions, magic conventions we have them every year all over, and every time I'm in a group of magicians, they. They they're able to fool each other, uh, so magicians can easily fool one another because they know how uh, I know how their minds work and they know how my mind works. You know, you, we know what we're looking for. Once I know what you're looking for, I can lead you down a garden path. And so magicians easily fool one another, and they can be taken in by Uriel. In fact, I would say uh, there's half of uh, a lot of the great supporters of Uriel were magicians. They were just taken in completely by him. You had an encounter with uh, Yuri Gello, didn't you? Back in the 1970s, you were asked to investigate him? Oh, yeah, I had several encounters. Uh, he and I are sort of good friends, and you might say by now. <laughs> Although uh, uh, Randy would not like, to, like me to say that. Uh, <laughs> Gello is more than just a faker to Randy. Randy hates them with uh, passion. So it's a lifelong, because he thinks that Gello is the most evilest of evil. But I, I like Gellar in a way. You know, he's a, he, he, he's a wonderful, uh, very uh, accommodating, charming con artist. He, he seems very but, charismatic, yeah. Yeah, he is charismatic. That's what he has. He's charisma. He, he's very, he's, he's improved. But when I first encountered him, he was a pretty bad magician, but he was a very good charismatic guy. He didn't have to be good because he could, over, he, he could sell himself anyway. But I encountered him, and I was the first one in this country to encounter him. He was brought here uh, from Israel uh, by a man named um, Puharich, who was character in his own right. He's a medical doctor, but he was traveling around looking for psychics, and he encountered Geller in Israel. And he took Geller to the United States and um, brought him to... um, the Stanford Research Institute to be tested, and that's when I got involved. I had a, I was grading exams. This 1972, I remember it very clearly. I was grading final exams at the University of Oregon, sitting in my office, and I get a call from Colonel Austin Kibler. Kibler, I knew him because he was also a PhD psychologist, and we knew each other. Kibler then was acting head of APRA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency of the Defense Department. Uh, it's now called DAPRA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. But that agency was set up by President Kennedy to be sort of like the Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon, part of the Defense Department to deal with, in other words, to deal with innovative new techniques and futuristic things and far out things that may have some import for the Defense Department. Colonel Kibler called me because he wanted me to drop whatever I was doing and go immediately to the Stanford Research Institute to investigate some psychic they had there. Um, and he says, I know what you're thinking, Ray. I know I know that you're skeptical and you don't believe it, and psychics at all. But this guy is more than just an ordinary psychic. He can do everything every other psychic can do, plus he does more. Like he bends metal with his mind. And I had this image of the Defense Department hoping that Geller would sit down there and bend Soviet. At that time, the Soviet Union was our, was was still uh, intact. 
and I had this image of the incense fire, hoping that Geller would sit down in in Stanford Research Institute and concentrate and bend Soviet tanks or something like that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I told him I couldn't go down right away. I was grading exams, and then it was, uh, also this the first. This was unusual, but an ice storm had taken over the whole ice coast, including uh, West Coast, uh, all the way down, including California, uh, where Stanford Research Institute was. But he said, "No, no, Ray. This is important. We want you to go down right away." And I says, "Why does it have to be so right right now?" And he says, "Because he said Geller." And this guy, Uri Geller, you know, he's a very temperamental guy, but also they're planning, some group is planning to do a life of his, uh, a musical uh, based on Geller uh, on Broadway uh, called the, uh, you know, what it's going to be like, what it's like to be a psychic who can bend metal. Okay, and they're going to do this musical. And he might leave any any moment from the lab there and go to Broadway so to, to uh, work with those people. So he says, I need you to go down right away. Turned out that he wanted me to go because he was going to have a, a three-man committee uh, go down say, uh, to represent the Defense Department to look at what Geller is doing. Uh, and he want, he was going to send the parapsychologist because he felt, felt if Geller really has psychic powers, it's going to take a parapsychologist to see it. On the other hand, he was very concerned that if... Uh, Geller is a phony fake. It'll take someone like me to see it. And the reason he was very concerned about that was because there was a Senator Proxmire at that time. I don't know if you ever heard of him. But Senator Proxmire was very famous for every year giving the, his Golden Fleece Awards. Sorry to interrupt here, but this is Blake. At this point in the interview, Ray was going to talk about the Golden Fleece Awards of Senator William Proxmire, which he awarded to highlight what he saw as misuse of public funds, which was a play on both the terms fleecing, meaning to rip off someone, and an allusion to the mythical Golden Fleece. Unfortunately, at this point, my computer rebooted itself. We were unable to get Ray's call reconnected for about 10 minutes, and when we did get reconnected, we lost the end of race comments regarding this controversial bit of American history. So I have put a link in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about Proxmire's Golden Fleece Awards. And we'll get back to Ray's interview now. Research Institute. And uh, before I went, though, I had called a deal with a man named Russell Targ, who was one of the two physicists who was studying Geller. And he called me and told me that I would be allowed to come in to the lab, but I cannot, must not tell Geller I'm a psychologist or a magician, because he would just pack up and just go. He doesn't, he can't tolerate magicians or uh, psychologists in his audience watching him. <laughs> so, uh, so I was told, don't just say you're representative of the Defense Department, and don't don't mention that either of those two things. So I went down there. We met with uh, this man, Van de Castle, who was the parapsychologist from the University of Virginia Medical School, actually. I, the Medic, Virginia, University of Virginia Medical School had a parapsychology department, mostly because they had a man named there, Stevenson, who dealt in reincarnation. But I didn't know they had a whole department and they had other people. This other guy was uh, Van de Castle, was his name, Robert Van de Castle. So he was a parapsychologist. Then they had a man, George Lawrence, who represented the Advanced Research Research Agency of the Defense Department. So we were in the three-man committee. And so when we got there, the physicists, um, two physicists were Russell Targ and uh, Hal um, Putoff, Harold Putoff. And they eagerly showed me a lot of their uh, data that they collected on Geller and and explained what was going on. But they pointed out he's very temperamental. And also, we'd be lucky if we saw anything really worthwhile the first day we were with him because he's very erratic. And when new people come in, he suddenly can't do anything. And so it's up in the air what's going to happen. And while we were talking... Oh, I should have mentioned that one of the reasons that um, I went was because the colonel who sent me there told me that, I, look, I know Ray, 
you don't believe this stuff, but let me tell you one of the things he did in my presence. We were out at Sanford Research Laboratory, and Geller asked to borrow someone's, someone's ring. And he said, don't let me touch it, though. And he had the person put the ring in the middle of the table that was in the laboratory room. And we all stood around the table, but kept back, you know, backed up from the table. So no one's even touching the table. And when Geller concentrated, the ring stood on the end, split in, in, in two, and that was uh, split and shaped itself into the letter S. And that, he, that's he, impressive. He, but yeah. <laughs> I thought it was very impressive, too. So I was going to when they'll see that. Mm-hmm. So when I got there, the very first thing I did, I said, they were telling me all the stories about what Gala does and, and showing me some of their records. Um, but I said, I kept asking him about this thing about the uh, ring that he meant without touching it. And I said, did anyone, did anyone where did this happen? And, and does that, do you have the ring? And so on. And, um, and they said, oh, don't worry, he can do it. I said, can he do it without touching it? And he said, he can do it either way. <laughs> he can, uh, sometimes we give him a ring uh, or something to bend, and he has to go to the bathroom. And by the way, uh, Randy called us urinalysis. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> lots of times he would go, he had trouble bending his food something like that, so he has to run off to the bathroom to put it under running water. So anyway, um, they said he could do it either way. And I kept pushing him. They got very annoyed with me. I said, well, who, who you had the ring? He said, oh, yeah. So they bought me a cup and the, the ring that he apparently bent. And it wasn't a ring that people wear in their finger. It was a ring that for some, some, some machinery that they do at Stanford Research Institute. They use these um, brass rings or whatever they are. I don't know what they're used for, but they use them a lot there. And this was a ring shaped in a letter, like a letter O, but it was compressed. So it was now like a, like a number eight. And uh, I said, you know, it would take pretty good strength, but it's, it was doable the way I looked at it, at that thing. But I said, did, um, uh, so did you see him bend this? And it turned out after I, a lot of conversation, they were all evasive. They hadn't seen him bend that. He had to give, they'd given it to him and showed it to him, and he took it home, and they came back the next day, and it was bent. Uh, How can science explain this? Uh, <laughs> that's so impressive. So, so I wasn't very impressed, apparently. But I said, and every time I said, did, he, did, he, did you ever see him do it without touching it? And he said, we could do it either way. <laughs> and I kept pushing him. I said, well... Show me some, tell me, do you have anyone here who actually saw him do it without touching it? And turned out they hadn't. And ultimately, uh, where it took a lot of, they really got annoyed with me, but I kept pressing. And ultimately, it turned out that no one there had ever seen him bend it uh, without having getting his hands on it. And sometimes without not only getting his hands on it, but going away into the bathroom or something with it. Um, and coming out and showing it was bent. It turned out that they took his word for it. He would, everything he did in that laboratory, in fact, they did with us too, for our committee, he would say, he would do it and say, he said, you know, usually it's much bigger than this when I do it. This is just a, I don't want to even contact, you know. So he bent the spoon a little bit and there was, uh, he had a little bend in it. But he said, oh, usually many times when I'm in a public, place some of that it bends and bends and does all kinds does all kinds of crazy crazy things. And I now know after knowing Gallo for quite a while and how he works, he says the same thing when he's in public on like the Johnny Carson show or something. He says, Oh, you know, I don't count this it's too small a bend. When I'm in a scientific laboratory I get better at that. It gets better get better results. When he's in a scientific laboratory he tells the scientists, Oh, when I'm in the public I get a better result. Uh, but he, uh, so he's uh, a lot of talk, very compelling. He's a uh, charismatic guy, and um, it's hard not to like him, I guess. The only one who really dislikes him with a passion is Randy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've got a long past. But, uh, 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. How does Geller fit in with the whole Project Stargate or Stargate Project and the military's use of psychic soldiers? Is he directly involved with that, or was no, that a separate uh, thing? He claims to be. No, he wasn't. Even though that also was carried on at Stanford Research Institute, he was never part of any of that. Interesting. But but you were, right? I mean, you, you had a, a role in yeah, that as well. Yes, yes, yeah, I was uh, Stargate Project. I think it was 1995. uh what happened there was that in the early 1970s, I think it was, uh, the CIA gave money to Stanford Research Institute, the same ones who were studying Geller. By the way, that was going on simultaneously with a study of Geller, but Geller wasn't part of the uh, CIA project, uh, to do remote viewing, uh, to study remote viewing. Uh, that was a term that uh, Russell Todd made to talk about just what we would call clairvoyance. By remote viewing was they would have these people who would lie down on a couch or something like that and presumably transport their astral body to some other place and describe, they would describe what was going on in that other place. And uh, so Todd and Puroff began doing a series of, uh, for the CIA, they began doing a series of studies just and what they would do, for example, they would give a remote viewer the coordinates of a place in the Soviet Union, for example, where they were interested in knowing what was going on. Uh, and the remote viewer would lie down or go into a trance or whatever and, and then began describing whatever came to their minds. And they felt they got some rather dramatic hits. They gave examples uh, of one case where the um, first one they tried even, uh, they were, the United States was interested in a place that they're, uh, these high-flying airplanes had seen they'd, some activity going on in this place, but they couldn't see what was going on inside. They, they saw some big cranes. And so uh, their first uh, remote viewer, they had to do remote viewing, and they claimed he went through this kind of a trance or whatever he goes into, and and then said he saw uh, the big cranes, but then he saw something else under there, and he, he said, described a few things there, and supposedly he had a, some great hits. And that was how they sold the CIA on us. They, they were, that was a test for the state case. For, and they, when, the, when the CIA saw what, what he did with this Russian place, they decided to go whole hog, and they gave money to to Stanford Research Institute to study para uh, to remote viewing, and that went on for a number of years. I spent about seven million dollars, I think, uh, for that first few years, and um, they produced data, and they ultimately published some of it, and that was torn apart by. Uh, uh, it was just half horrible stuff. Um, the uh, 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 David Marks 
in New Zealand, that he now lives in London, a uh, psychologist in New Zealand, he tried to replicate, when he first heard about these experiments at SRI, he tried to replicate the remote viewing experiments, especially the ones that they published, which got highly significant results. And they couldn't get any of it. You know, they, they were doing, they believed it, you know, but they couldn't get it. Whenever they did it, they just found nothing. So uh, David Marks came over to the United States. In fact, he, I got him a, uh, uh, a, uh, a temporary appointment at the University of Oregon so he could live while he was here. So he came from New Zealand to the United States and stayed with me, actually. And then he went down to Stanford Research Institute and wanted to see them, see their data. And they went then look at it. And he had a terrible time. He spent a lot of time trying to get hold of it. He couldn't. Finally, he got friendly with one of the judges. And the judge had the data that he could look at. And he looked at those data. He took, took the back that back to New Zealand with him, and he did experiments, and he showed that when you edit, but for example, the remote viewer would say things, they would do a, let's say they're, they would send a team out from Stanford Research Institute while the remote viewer was closeted with uh, Russell Targ at Stanford Research Institute, and they would go to some target place and wander around and the remote viewer supposedly would say, oh, I see some water, I see some towers, and stuff like that. And then they'd come back and they'd all take, take uh, the remote viewer with them and they'd all go back to the, the actual target and see how close the target was to what uh, the reviewer had said. And they'd find, they thought some great matches. But they then did a statistical analysis and it came out highly significant that this was not chance that these people were actually picking up data but David Marks doing the same thing couldn't repeat any of that so he got this uh, judge uh, uh, I'm trying to remember his name now uh, but he, he became friendly with one of the people who had been the judge for the remote viewing experiments and this man had kept copies of all the protocols let me give you an example they would have for, let's say this particular remote viewer testing they would give him Test them on seven days, let's say. And the first day, uh, there'd be a target that the target team went out to. The second day, there'd be a second target and so on. Let's say the first day was the Hoover Tower at Stanford University. The reviewer would describe a lot of different things, including the tower, which is a very prominent uh, fixture in that area. And they would say, that's a good match. That matches the, that, that particular target description matches the Hoover Tower, and they would go on and click that several days in a row, but what David Marks found was that there were clues from one day to the other. For example, uh, in the protocol, though, the person, like uh, Targ, one of the people, whoever was sitting with the remote viewer, uh, he would say to the remote viewer, now, how does that compare with the Hoover Tower that we were looking at yesterday? Well, that already gives the judge a clue <laughs> as to the fact that this very first, uh, they were numbered, the very first target that the, the remote you had to work with was the Hoover Tower. And so on. He found all kinds of clues like that. When he removed those clues and gave his judges uh, in New Zealand uh, the, the task of matching the targets to the, uh, to the protocols, it was just chance. And on and on it went. By the way, a lot of this work, if you're really interested in it, the best work on this, destroying all the remote viewing work is a book by David Marks. The name just skips me now. But it was published by Prometheus Pet Books. It's got solid chapters on all this remote viewing. And there's their, all that stuff apart completely. Well, they went on for, after uh, Target Putoff uh, stopped doing their work it was taken over by uh, uh, one of the people who had been working there. Uh, it, 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 um, Book by David Marks is called The Psychology of the Psychic. That's right, The Psychology of the Psychic, right. Okay. Excellent. He, it's devastating. His book tears apart everything that's been done on remote viewing. Very good. It's the best complete uh, expose of it all. In other words, showing that none of it works at all, even the best work. 
that they was later done by the uh, Ed, um, oh boy. <laughs> but anyways, the guy who succeeded with uh, Target put off, and he uh, carried out a whole series for the, uh, this, by the way, the CIA, uh, in the first five years of the program, uh, decided that it wasn't working for them, so they dropped it. And the DIA, the Department of uh, Intelligence, the Defense Intelligence Agency, took over. And they were running the program until uh, 1995, I think it was, because that's when I was called in. Uh, they, the CIA, oh, what happened was there was uh, the remote viewers that they had, uh, I think, so any, at any moment, any one time during that period, they had about, uh, the Army had about five to ten remote viewers, and they were housed at the fort in, uh, not far from Washington, D.C., so that's where they were based. But a general was in command of them, and a fight developed between the a general and the remote viewers. They felt he was asking them to do things which they're not supposed to, they're not doing. He, he wasn't appreciative that the psychics have, you know, they don't deal with quantities. For example, he was asking him to remove you the uh, nuclear installations uh, in the North North Korea, and they they balked because they said we're not we're psychics we don't deal with quantities we deal with images and stuff like that, and so they complained and this uh, fight between the general who commands them and the remote viewers got to the oversight committee of the Senate. And in its wisdom, the Oversight Committee decided we'll take the remote viewing project away from the DIA and put it back with the CIA. Well, the CIA didn't want it anymore. <laughs> they didn't want it, but they didn't want to displease the Oversight Committee to send it. That could have some budget repercussions and stuff. So in their wisdom, they decided what we'll do is we'll have a we'll set up a blue ribbon panel which will evaluate all the research to see whether it's worth our taking over or whether we should drop the whole business. And the Blue Ribbon panel turned out to be me and Jessica Utz. Jessica Utz is a parapsychologist. She's a good statistician. She's now at University of California at Irvine, but she was then at University of California at Davis. She's a good parapsychologist. We're good friends in some ways, but... Uh, She's a good statistician. She, according to my friend Percy Diaconis, who was a top notch statistician. So I always would tell her that she is a good statistician, but uh, she doesn't know nothing about data. And garbage in is garbage out. So if you if you do statistics today with that, that that already is, is compromised, you're just going to get garbage. And she was very insulted by that. And uh, uh, but anyways, we were asked to review the whole 20 years program and I had in my basement I maybe still maybe I threw it out finally but I had three cartons big cartons of data everything was put out by the uh, remote viewing project at this at uh, uh, Stanford's research institute but also what the there were three projects going on simultaneously as part of the bigger project so what the Government had been doing uh, using the various uses the government had been making on remote viewers, and so that was the operational part of the program. And the third part of the program was what uh, information we had about what the Soviets were doing. A Senator Claiborne Powell, for example, wanted to have a big project like the Manhattan Project for to help the United States get caught up on psychic warfare. He called it the Psy Gap. And the Russians were 20 years ahead of us in applying uh, remote viewing and other psychic techniques to warfare and other as important aspects, intelligence gathering. And we had to catch up with them. So we wanted to have this big project. And by the way, one of the parts of the program of this program, as I said, there was the operational part. There was the uh, research part being done at Stanford Research Institute. But then there was the part where they kept tabs on the Soviet Union, what the Soviet Union was doing. They had spies and stuff like that, presumably. And I was told that, knowing I was a skeptic, they said, well, do you see what we have, the information we have, what the Soviet Unions are doing with remote viewing and psychic, uh, applying psychic techniques to warfare? You change your mind. But the problem was, 
it was so secret that I didn't, and I didn't have clearance. Well, it took me three months. I finally got clearance, <laughs> and I was able to finally go see the secret stuff we had and what the Soviet Union was doing. <laughs> I can't believe it. It was just horrible. The very best thing, I, first of all, I had to go to uh, Fort Lewis, I think it is. I had to go there where they kept the records as well. That was where they had remote viewers, too, but they kept the records on what Soviet Union was doing. I was told that once I went in there, I had to be accompanied by uh, this case. He was a lieutenant colonel that I know of now. He lives in Las, in Las Vegas. Every time he goes to Las Vegas for a convention, he always shows up. But he was a, uh, a gung-ho psychic believer who headed a, uh, a musician's uh, project at uh, that same fort. He told me that he... Can't, you know, he's got to be very careful what he does with the budget he's spending on testing munitions, but he's a, it's allowed, they have a rule that if you give less than $10,000, you don't have to document the details of what it's going for. And so the, he was then supporting a, a man who was a lie detector expert, but who also was doing psychic research in the sense of plants. He was a guy who started that craze in the, I think the 60s of uh, talking to plants. He was, as a lie detector guy, he suddenly, some, on a whim, he put a, a lie detector on a leaf of a phylodendron. And then when he, he found that the phylodendron showed typical uh, emotional reactions, when a, a, some, some brine or some other living stuff was murdered, then you poured hot water on it in another room or even in another building. It would show a reaction. And that's out of the whole craze of talking to plants and stuff like that. Well, uh, this lieutenant colonel uh, was uh, supporting that guy by giving him $10,000 a month. If he gave him $120,000 a year, whatever he's giving him to do his research, he would have to account for that, and that would be a no-no because the money he was, his budget was only supposed to be used for testing munitions. But he was able to, because you didn't have to document what you did up to $10,000, you give him $10,000 a month, and so that's how we were supporting him. Now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> I've got your book, The Elusive Quarry, and that book's about 30 years old now, I guess. And in that book, you talk a lot about uh, the need for protocol tightening and removing biases in these sort of uh, paranormal psychic studies. Is is that still the predominant problem in psi research? No, but we know more about it now. And I have a, a bigger model I'm working on about how people can... How smart, I've done a lot of work on how smart people can go wrong. I've done... Uh, there was a book put out, actually, by uh, uh, Robert Sternberg, edited a book on um, how smart... why smart people could can be so stupid, that's what he called the book. And he got experts from all over to write chapters for the book. And then he sent me all the chapters and asked if I would read them all, then write an overall, overarching chapter for the beginning of the book to cover it all, you know. And that's what I did. And uh, so that's one I call why smart people can go wrong, I think. Whatever. But anyways, it, it, it tries to pull together I I try to pull together all the what the other experts had to say about that but then pointed out what they had missed because they weren't using examples from uh like the Piltdown Man or or like um uh from the psychic world you know the uh, claims that uh from uh, and so I use a lot of examples like that to bring out the reasons why smart people can go wrong but basically, it's very simple. Uh, when we mean smart, we're talking about something like intelligence, which is a measure of capacity. It's 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 how much capacity people have to handle certain kinds of abstract ideas and and information. But what is important in the world that we work in is how we use our capacity, what we use it for. And uh, so the whether someone is rational or irrational is independent of whether they're smart in the sense of being having a high capacity. Because having a high capacity doesn't mean you're going to use it or you're going to use it properly. And it's in the application of what you have that, that where everything can go wrong. 
and uh, we use shortcuts, and most of the time our shortcuts are helpful because we can't uh, use our minds also for everything at the same time. We have limited capacity in our uh, our intelligence, our, our highest form of cognition, and um, so we tend to not. We tend to try to work on automatic pilot most of the time, so we can save our precious uh, amount of uh, top-notch cognitive capacity. And as a result, a lot of times we are uh, using automatic associative thinking, we call it, and that means you can be taken in by all kinds of stuff. Ray, you've once said that uh, it's not normal to be a skeptic and that it's more normal to be a believer. Yes, and uh, by the way, uh, my good friend Jim Alcock, I guess you know of him. Yes. He's written, he's writing a book now, which is a fantastic book. You know, it's really coming everything on belief. He says, so he, and I've been reviewing it, helping him. I, you know, he sends me chapters as he writes them. It's going to be a big book, mm-hmm. writes on belief. But anyway, uh, he's a good source to understand also why smart people can go wrong, you know, and why people get to believe weird things. He, he uses in his book, the reason I brought up his book that he's writing, he brings up this thing which we all know, uh, going all the way back to the philosopher Spinoza. Spinoza says that whatever someone tells us, we our first, uh, our first thing we do is we believe it. Mm-hmm. And then we uh, then spend more time, we have to spend a lot of think on it, but then, then we, if we spend more time with it, we can poke holes in it or say, you know, defend it or, or actually change our minds. But the normal thing, the normal uh, state for uh, for the way the mind works is that whenever it encounters a new statement, it, it believes it until it, it then, then thinks further about it. But the problem is that we really think further about it. We, we accept quite a bit of number of stuff without thinking about it. So that almost any time we come across any statement, the normal default uh, is for us to believe it, whatever someone says. And if we're not consciously then trying to check it, and work at it to see whether it really is true, and then we, and this becomes part of our makeup. We can our belief system, and we have a lot of beliefs like that because they came in at a time we were distracted, or we weren't paying attention, uh, or we weren't trying to test it. And once it gets in there as a as a something we believe, then uh, it gets more powerful. In other words, it, it becomes part of our belief system. This little notion that that the first tendency is to believe something and then later check it out can count for a lot of ways why, why really people can get to believe things. By the way, the most important implication, one of the oh, strongest oh. implications of it, and we have a lot of research on it, is the misinformation effect. That <clears throat> you can uh, give people, the experiments they do to show it, is they give people a lot of statements to look at, you know, and, and judge whether they're true or false, okay? Then the next week or something like that, after some time interval, we'll give the people a list of statements again, uh, like a hundred or so, and ask them to, to judge whether these are true or false. Without telling the people that, half the statements they give them are ones they repeated from the original list, and the other half are new ones. And they keep doing this over a long span of time. And it turns out that just the ones that you've seen, even though originally you didn't believe them, that you've seen them repeated several times, there's enough so that their truth value goes up. And so simply repeating misinformation again and again and again, advertisers know this all over again. Uh, but we have very strong psychological studies now which show that that, that, creates, that increases your belief in, this, in it. So if we just want to uh, spread lies and stuff like that, we just repeat it over and over again. And because you forget where the source is, it's called source amnesia. And the reason that it's in your mind and you can recall it easily that that gets you to believe that this must be true. And as a result of that, just exposing people to anything for a lot of time will get them to later believe that this must be very true. Well, the, so much of what we consume now, the data, the amount of information that's being sent to us through our telephones, through our browsers, and through the media, the, all these things, uh, there's there seems to be not enough vetting of information in the, the, everything's about get the news out first and then figure out if it's true later. That's right. Uh, right. And so that, that's problematic. That's, I, I think, more my concern. What can people who self-identify as skeptics do to stem the tide of this nonsense or to counteract these these tendencies towards irrationality? that seem to be part of the human condition. 
the biggest problem facing us, our society as a whole, anyway, is misinformation. And unfortunately, uh, there's what we call the, um, there's a backfire effect. When you're trying to discredit uh, something that that does nonsense, the very fact that you're talking about it reinforces the belief in it. That will create the belief. It's a catch-22 type of thing. Mm -hmm. So that if I'm going to debunk, I'm trying to debunk um, uh, John Edward and... uh, more I talk about him, though, uh, that itself is, is reinforcing that it must be true. He must be true. It strengthens people's belief in it. Uh, they they forget the source of where it came from, but what happens is that becomes something that's easily retrievable from their memory. They're not, they don't know, they don't remember where it came from. And as a result, if things are easily retrievable from our memory, we tend to believe that it must be so. And this is, again, goes back to uh, the way if you want to spread a lot of misinformation, you keep repeating, like the truther uh, thing that they repeated of, for Obama, uh, and uh, that, you know, his that he wasn't born in, in, in America. And you keep repeating that, people, all kinds of people then tend to believe it so now. And uh, it's very hard to undo, mm-hmm. even though finally... Trump, who started it all, uh, finally, uh, finally, recently, you know, during the, his uh, uh, nomination campaign, finally admitted that it wasn't true. But it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, Ray, we could talk with you for hours. Um, we've really been enjoying chatting with you about these topics. Um, we've got a final question that we like to ask all of our guests, and that is, what's your favorite monster? Well, you know, when uh, you warned me, you gave me a heads up that this is what you're going to do. You're going to ask me that question. I, yes. I really looked, it worked hard and hard and hard. I couldn't think of anything. And finally, I did come up with my favorite monster is the Loch Ness Monster. Because of, this monster has lasted for, for a long time and will last forever, I suspect. That's <laughs> so a great monster. Yeah, she's popular. I, I mean, she's. I haven't. We've never. I don't think we've put any statistics together on what people have chosen. But she's up there. She's very high on the list. People, people like her a lot. I like her a lot. Yeah. How can you not? It's <laughs> a nice answer. Ray, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I, I thank you, easily Ray. could talk to you for another evening. I, I think uh, we'll have to have Ray back sometime. You're welcome. Sorry, we got all these glitches. That's fine. That's part oh, of the course. Yeah, I think we got the mind out. Yeah, we'll have to have you back Absolutely. on the show. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Monster Talk, the science show about monsters, is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show are those of my guests or the hosts and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you'd like to know the official opinions of those organizations, you can concentrate carefully until your inexpensive cutlery bends itself into the shapes of letters revealing their secret plans. Or you could just download the app, an ad for which appears after this outro. Today, you heard an interview with psychologist Ray Hyman. Links to the many topics and books he discussed are in the show notes at monstertalk.org. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as the donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Thank you so much to the many people who have decided to support us on Patreon or send us books to research future topics. 2017 has been an incredibly busy and stressful time for us already, but your support has been a much-needed encouragement. We thank you. I'm looking forward to reading some of these amazing books to help us with future episodes. Intro music for this episode was Dark Walk by Kevin McLeod. 
Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.